The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. Nice to see everybody here today. Can't remember if I mentioned last week, um, but anyway, I'll be out of town the next two weeks. I'll be teaching in Massachusetts at one of the grandmother institutions in this tradition called Insight Meditation Society, or usually IMS, place that Sharon Salzberg and Jack Kornfield and Joseph Goldstein started in 1975 with some other supporters and has been going now for 40 years, I guess, a long time. So I'll be teaching a nine-day retreat there, but we have some wonderful teachers coming up in the next couple of weeks, so it's really great uh, how many uh, teachers we have now at the center that have just, a lot of them have just developed here over the years in the community. Common Ground's been here since 1993. And I guess I'll mention also that the center operates on this really beautiful practice of dana, this circle of giving and receiving. So we normally don't talk about money much and we don't have suggested donations or any charges for any of the programs. The programs are offered freely. And the idea is to come, when you come to the center, take a class or whatever it is, that you receive it as a free gift which is challenging for us to just let it in. Of course, it happens because the whole community, all that's happened before, have allowed the programs to be offered freely, no strings attached. And so we work. It's, a, it's really training to receive the goodness, the beautiful stuff that comes our way, whether it's a hug or friendliness from a stranger or a class at Common Ground Meditation Center but just to really land and make an impression on our heart. And at some point, you may feel naturally, organically, like you want to give back because it makes you happy, not because it, you're, you feel guilty. Oh, I took something, I've got to give back. Because you didn't take anything, it was a free gift to you. So there's no guilt, right? If you're guilt, guilty, then you've got to look at what's going on. You really have to learn how to take it as a free gift. And then when you feel like giving back, let that, also it's a practice, give in a way that makes you happy. So if you give too much, then you'll feel some reverberation afterward, like that didn't feel good. Like I have other things I need to do with that money or that time if you volunteer too much of your time. Or if you don't give anything or if you give too little, it might also leave a reverberation in your heart like, oh, why was I holding back? What am I afraid of? And you can experiment. And there's really no right or wrong way to do it. And we do have information on the website. You can learn a little bit more. There's a sheet of paper with some information next to the donation balls on the, in the lobby. You can take a look at that. Or you can talk to Tom, our program host, who's somewhere in the room over here afterward. Or come up and talk with me if you have any questions about that. And we'll fill you in. And Tom also has an iPad in case you want to make a credit card donation. But you can always go online to our website, and there's a PayPal account on our website that you can leave a donation as well if you want to use a credit card. So um, before I leave for a couple weeks, I thought it'd be nice to continue what I started talking about, I think two weeks ago, this shift of view, which really goes to the heart of what the, the Buddha taught. The, world, the Buddha taught this very provocative thing that our suffering, the stress that we feel, the un, those moments of being uncomfortable, it's not because our friend is a jerk or because life isn't the way we want it. It actually has something to do internally with the way our mind is. 
right? We have a wrong understanding, is how the Buddha might say it. We're misunderstanding or misperceiving what's happening. It doesn't mean our friend, you know, is perfect. They may be imperfect, right? How they're treating us may be a little off or even a lot off. But what's more relevant isn't whether our friend is on or off. What's more relevant is what is my mind doing with that experience? And so in Buddhism, we call that it's all about view or one's understanding. And so the last couple of weeks, if you haven't been here, I've been talking about how one of the most potent, easy ways to shift our view or understanding is to draw on our own experience of love. And of course, love has different flavors. There's compassion when our loving heart meets suffering, our own suffering or the suffering of others. There's appreciation or gladness, like we chanted. They translated that word mudita as gladness in our chant today, which is when our heart meets something beautiful and good. We appreciate it. We're grateful for it. We're glad about it. And then there's the love that expresses itself as equanimity, like when we don't really know what's going on, but we're still willing to be close. We're still willing to be intimate, even though it's confusing what's going on. And that's called equanimity. I mean, it, it's equanimity that's okay when things are ambiguous or uncertain. I don't know what's going on, but I'm willing to be close. I'm willing to relax. I'm willing to feel what I'm feeling. Because... I have this love, this wisdom that knows how to be close even when it's ambiguous. So these are the flavors of the good heart, this basic goodness, basic goodwill. And when, when we access that, and of course we can access that in any moment, we could be really upset and in the next moment I can care about how painful my upset is, my, my being upset is, right? So love the actual quality of love is that capacity everybody has to be close with things as they are, to be unafraid, to feel what we're feeling. Right? It's that understanding. It's a wisdom. Love is a kind of wisdom that knows even if I don't like it, it belongs. How do I know it belongs? Because it's already like this right now. So I say yes. Not that I would choose for my circumstances or the world to be the way it is, but it's like this, so I'm going to be close to it. Because it, that willingness to be close, to be intimate, feels right. In the same way, the need, the dependence on being apart, being alienated, being afraid, when we actually look at that way of relating, it doesn't feel right. It doesn't we sense immediately directly in our heart like this is a cause for suffering. It isn't helpful. It isn't functional for me to consciously alienate, isolate, separate myself from others, from the world. We understand that when something is really difficult that we do close down. I mean, in a sense, it makes sense that we do that. But just because it makes sense, like I don't have the capacity to be close to what's going on in my life, I don't have the capacity to be around you because your suffering is scaring me, it makes sense, but that doesn't mean that ultimately it's skillful to close down, to get, dis- to get distracted, go in denial, you know, whatever we do. It just means that that's all we can do sometimes. 
and we forgive ourselves. So then, instead of being able to be close to the suffering that's too intense, we can be close to what it's like to be the person who has to run away from that suffering, who has to turn away from it. And we can forgive, or we can start there. We can forgive ourselves for numbing out. You know, I'm just going to turn the TV on and eat my favorite comfort food. When my wife and I were up at Duluth, and we went to, I thought, a relatively fancy restaurant, but they had sort of this high-end mac and cheese. And I asked the the waiter about it, uh, and this person said, yeah, this this is my go-to food. Because <laughs> of the comfort. But it was like not nor- normal mac and cheese, like smoke something or other cheese. And, few other interesting things, Broc- broccolini, is that what it's called? <laughs> it was good. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, so w- it's okay. We will have to turn away. We will seek the comfort of our bed or the comfort of our pet or, you know, whatever you do when the world is just too weird or too messy or too unpleasant. But we don't imagine that needing to run away, needing to close down is ultimately a useful strategy. If it's our only strategy, we start to feel the depressive, numb, alienated feeling that comes with reinforcing the idea that the world is too much, too intense, too wild, too un- you know, uncontrollable or whatever we tell ourselves. So it's not a long-term strategy, though we will use it in moments. So today I thought it would be nice to talk more specifically about this quality of mudita, this appreciative joy of learning to recognize what's beautiful and good. And not like once a day, but often we should be able to see actually what's good. And it's really a matter of, of loosening up our imagination because if we're You know, if we're like a lot of us, we tend to be critically minded. We see what's off. We see what's scary. Like in this room right now, in this moment right now, there probably could be one person in the room that, you know, we don't like for whatever reason. You know, they're too young or too old or too this or too that, or we don't recognize them as being here before, whatever it is. We don't like their sweater or we don't like their you know, whatever, how they're dressed or the jewelry or they're wearing or, you know, they're they're not dressed formally enough or they're too dressed up. I mean, all these sort of superficial ways that we judge people. And you know what? We don't have to get rid of all of that cultural conditioning about how we judge each other. We just need to become more and more aware of it and to see it for what it is. It's there. It actually skews, creates biases, how we relate, how we hold people. But if we see it, if we're honest enough to see it, that's the start. And then we can choose to pay attention to other things. Once we know that tendency of mind to judge and compare in these sort of biased ways, then we can start to see other things. We can choose like just to notice something else that's beautiful in the room, right? Like one thing that we can get pretty good at is realizing that everybody here is a human being who was born, was a little baby, 
now has grown, someday will be older, or one way or another will lose this life, this life will end, everything that is dear to them will be taken, absolutely everybody in this room. So as you look around or just sense the people around you, everybody in this room has experienced hopefully moments of real joy and really deep pain, right? Think about, I mean, I think about a time, I think I was a seventh grader when our cat died at home, right? Just that I, I can still feel that ache of walking. I can picture that moment walking in the back door and one of my siblings kind of rushed over and told me and just that, that boom, you know, when you heard that and the mind not knowing what to do with that pain. Well, this isn't just me, right? Everybody has had some moment like that in their own life probably. Maybe many, many moments. Maybe even greater tragedies have happened. So now I could tune into that about this room. Or there are probably a lot of people in the room who are going to do something fun this afternoon. right? And I could just tune into that. I have three younger people in front of me today. And, uh, you know... (laughs) When I said that, you nodded. So uh, I don't know. Becca, what are you guys doing this afternoon? Where? Oh, yeah, there you go. That sounds good. So you're treating all of us? <laughs> They'll have a big booth for us all. Yeah, so just to appreciate that mystery, like not knowing what everybody's up to, but some people in this room are going to have great afternoons probably. And just appreciating that, the, the tugs, the joys, the sorrows, and to know that we're all sort of brothers and sisters, friends in these circles of the joys and sorrows of human life. Hey, now we could tune into that, and that evokes a different feeling, right? There's a much more powerful sense of sisterhood, brotherhood, intimacy, when we bring that to mind instead of, you know, I don't like how you're dressed or I don't recognize you or whatever other kind of idea we might pay attention to. And doesn't it make sense that as a human being, we'd want to be really skilled at seeing what's good and beautiful? Because the, when we do that, when we actually notice something that moves our heart, you see two baby squirrels chasing each other. And it just sort of moves your heart in a simple way, right? It's not like life-transforming moment, but it's just a simple moment of joy to see that life energy expressed through two squirrels or whatever it is that we might often not see but that we could see. Or seeing two people getting along. It's such a wonderful thing, you know, when you see two people greeting each other. Like when you're at an airport, which is often a stressful time, but one of the neat things to do at the airport, like where you're dropping, being dropped off or dropping, just watch the tenderness of people saying goodbye. I mean, not everybody. Some of it is sort of an indifference. But, you know, maybe 20%, 30%. It's like a really beautiful thing. Or when you're waiting for someone to pick you up or you're waiting to pick someone up, watch other people. And just that simple, ordinary greeting of people who've been apart for a few days, and then meeting each other. I mean, this is what we neurotically do with the Internet, right? These viral YouTube videos of 
somebody coming back from service in Iraq or wherever, you know, and then their dog <laughs> running up, you know? So we all have the capacity to be touched by what is beautiful, but we lack imagination and uh, kind of clarity about how functional, how healing it is to become good at it. To not really, to really not let an hour go by before we've seen something that's beautiful. I mean, simple things like, you know, when you look at the trim around the windows and Rick Okada, the architect, and David Asselstein and all the other people who were involved in the planning process, right? These little touches, like we used the natural oil, we didn't put polyurethane, and just how the wood goes a little longer, you know, it's just, it has a slightly different feel to the windows. And here, even though it's sort of commercial, right, there's a credit union next to us on this side, but the windows are high enough, we just see the tops of the trees and the sky. Like all these little touches in the wood, and Corey Needleman made the platform, and Mary McCann made this lectern, and Cecilia Schiller did this, and the monks at Abayagiri donated this, and a Bakuni um, Aya Tataloka told us about this statue, and like all these little things here. And Don, who's here this morning, helped us figure out how to do an LED spotlight here. And it's like one thing after another. It may have been Kyoko Katayama who found these sconces, which had a nice touch. And we can just appreciate, or people like Tom Gullett, who's been helping with the audio and the recording for probably 15 years, right? At least, maybe longer. (laughs) You know, all these people who have kind of made this place and to be really appreciative, right? It almost makes you want to cry. I mean, for me it does. Like I wasn't planning to say that, but just like remembering all of that, all the goodness. And I saw Jake out mowing the lawn yesterday afternoon when it was hot. And Patrice, who's been teaching here since the 90s at the center. All the sort of web of goodness that makes this place, and it's, you know, calm ground's not that unique to the goodness that just pervades our lives. So why is it that we haven't become really good, trained our mind to recognize this all day long? Because it makes us happy. I mean, it's like a healing thing to do. And it's part of this misunderstanding, you know, and you, we get a sense like through evolution why a living being, an animal, is going to be more attentive to danger, like to the saber-toothed tigers that are trying to get us, or the diseases, or the whatever it is, right? It's like, if I held up an article about Lyme's disease and the tiny little deer ticks and how they're moving into the suburbs, and then the inner cities, (laughs) and maybe your dog has them, Patrice, (laughs) and you should shave their fur off before they come into the house. And <laughs> I joked to Wynn, my partner, last night as she was cuddling with the cat. I said, yeah, but that cat might be having deer ticks. <laughs> right? I mean, it's just sort of like that changes. You know, it's like... <laughs> All of a sudden, it evokes a whole different idea, like I'm in danger, you know. And, and some of you maybe are 
you know, way over the other side where you're overly sentimental, overly sort of rosy, glassed view of the world, seeing only the good only, and totally in denial of the very real pain, the very real danger in the world. So then you can use your friends to kind of ground you in that reality of like there is danger, right? And there is sorrow and there is pain and it's good to include that. But a lot of us, especially with the news these days, you know, have become really obsessed and we then get in a habit of noticing what's off, you know, what mom's doing that we don't like instead of what mom's doing that we do like, right? That's for you, Becca. <laughs> right, because, you know, it's, and it's the same thing with all of us in, in uh close relationship with another person, whether you're married or just going out with someone or have close friends. You know, even with our dear ones, we tend, some of us who are more critically oriented, you know, we tend to notice first what's wrong. I mean, it is shocking to me how I do this, even now, you know, after so many years with my partner, how pervasive that habit to see what I don't like. And how often it seems to make sense to tell her about it. (laughs) You would think I would learn. (laughs) It's really embarrassing, but (laughs) but it, it tells us something about how impersonal habits are. And so it's not like I can just change the habit, but I can have a lot more forgiveness. I can have a lot more compassion about how difficult it is to be around me at times, right? And to ask for forgiveness to the people where, when, and how it's appropriate. And even that can be seeing something that's beautiful, like to see the resilience of the other person who puts up with it. And to see that humility, that slowly, gradually deepening humility uh, about my own conditioning, you know, and basically to see how I'm the continuation of my parents and they're the continuation of the suffering of their parents and through generations how, unfortunately, we continue these patterns of suffering. And that can break the heart open. Seeing it is beautiful. Living it out unconsciously, of course, is just the cycles of suffering. But to begin to see it honestly and to be willing to feel what it feels like to be part of continuing cycles of suffering, that breaking open of the heart surprisingly is beautiful, right? Because it's healing. It's the beginning of healing. And the same thing like with racism. As painful as it is for me as a white person, but everybody in their own you know, culturally conditioned place in our world, to the to the degree we're a little bit more honest about these cycles of suffering and injustice. Of course, there are many ways that injustice is entrenched, not just through racism. But to the degree we're willing to feel into that, as painful and humiliating as that is, it also has the flavor of liberation because it's so much unconscious work to stay unconscious, to stay unaware about injustice, whether it's around consumerism and the economic oppression or sexism that still 
is mostly unconscious in our culture. You know, we've, it, we get confused by some change because we so desperately don't want to feel what it feels like to be a human being, whether, where we're basically a- acting out our animal instincts, which is all around power and survival. But we've purdied it up, but that sort of has caused a lot of things to go unconscious, to be below the surface. And then we really suffer. I mean, not only is there injustice, but the unconsciousness of it is so much more suffering. So we could either be burdened by all this, or we could really start seeing how the screws are getting looser. And instead of being afraid of that pain, we can tune in to the freedom that's there, to actually see it as something beautiful, that things are coming to light, that we're starting slowly to talk about it. And even the resistance to this can be part, seeing that as part of this healing work, that it's a little bit more on the surface. There's this... uh, article that Wes Nisker, he's a teacher out in the West Coast and a really funny guy, a Dharma teacher at Spirit Rock. He was a journalist before. When I was a grad student at UC Berkeley back in the mid, when was that? (laughs) I guess early 80s. And and he was the journalist on KFOG. Maybe some of you have been in the Bay Area. That's used to be, I don't know if it, is, if it exists anymore, it used to be the, the, the sort of supreme rock station in the Bay Area, KFOG. And uh, he would come on every hour and do the news with sort of a sarcastic bent. And then he'd always end with, if you don't like the news, go out and make some. <laughs> <laughs> and then he became a Dharma teacher. <laughs> And uh, one of the things he did for years and years, he was the editor of Inquiring Mind, which is a journal for the wider insight meditation Vipassana community here in the States and Western world at least. And he and Barbara Gates ran that journal. And he had the um, end um, column in the journal every month. or I guess they did it twice a year maybe, or four times a year. Four times a year. And then... uh, his column, he had an article back in 2009 called The Noble Kvetch. I'm not that good at Yiddish. Kvetch. Right? Fit? Kvetch. Kvetch. Anyway, The Noble Kvetch. And he talks about like two groups of people, and especially in our tradition here, the insight meditation coming out of Theravada Buddhism um, from places like Burma and Sri Lanka and Thailand. And uh, he said, you know, you could kind of look at the crowd like here this morning where the people came into their practice because they were obsessed by the first noble truth, the Buddha taught, there is suffering, right? So people who tune in to the fact that life is difficult or you're a third stir, like a first stir, people who are more interested in the first noble truth, or the third stirs, people who are interested in the third noble truth, there's an end to suffering, right? That's the third noble truth. And it's kind of like just pointing to our basic personality programming. Are you a third stir where you're obsessed, interested in perfection and ease and release, or that life is a 
you know, B-I-T-C-H, and it's hard, and, you know, and when you hang out with your buddies, that's what you talk about, you know, the people you got to hang out with who aren't, aren't any good, or the teachers at, you know, this, or the... So the key is to balance it. So the question is, like he, uh, <laughs> he quotes Gloria Steinem in that article that he wrote, where she said evidently, quote, the truth will get you free, but first it will piss you off. <laughs> I think that's great. <laughs> it's like even, even when we start our sit, you know, and the first thing we do is we open to the body, right? It sort of pisses us off to have to feel the body as it is because it's sort of the chronic tension and just the uncomfortableness of sitting still and, but after a while, the integration, that kind, clear, steady, unflappable presence with the body, it turns out to feel pretty good, especially after a little training. To be intimate with the body is really pleasant. Having a human body generally is not pleasant. And the older you get, the more that truth becomes apparent. But being with the body, relating to the body in an unconditional way, in a loving way, in a fearless way, that's beautiful and, and conducive of great ease. So here's the thing. The world will always be messy. The body, having a human body, will always be messy, will always be imperfect. But we can relate to the body. We can relate to our partners, our parents, our friends, we can relate in a way that is truly liberating and beautiful. But it won't make the world perfect. It won't make our friends perfect, the mother perfect, the daughters perfect. Right? What makes things perfect is the way the mind relates, not the way the conditions are. Conditions, nature, nature is just going to be nature. It's wild. It's sometimes joyful, sometimes sorrowful. But we can relate to the joys and sorrow with kindness and wisdom, and that makes it beautiful. So the Buddha points to freedom based on how we're relating. So as a beginning training in this, we can train to see what's beautiful. Because when we see what's beautiful, what does the negativity, the aversion in the heart do? It, it falls away. Aversion falls away when we're seeing what's beautiful. And we get a little taste of what it's like to be relating to something, the mind or body or our particular conditions, to be relating without that critical mind, without that aversive mind, without fear. So see, like as homework, see how many moments you can be relating to something and it doesn't matter what it is, where there's no fear in your heart, no tightness, no controlling energy. It's just that, that joy of connecting, of being present, of putting down the load of needing it to be different than it is. Like in those first moments when you lie outside on the grass, in that first few seconds, it's like just really wonderful. Until the, you notice the grass is a little scratchy or that there's a little ant or the sun's a little too hot or the clouds are blocking the sun it's a little too cool but the first moment is really nice 
and to really let it in and then to notice the heart that is uncomplicated by aversion. Because it, it reminds the mind of something deep in the depth, depths of the mind, which is a mind that's letting the world be the world, letting everything be the way it is. So it's a little, even simple moments of appreciation, like when you sit down and you finally have your food delivered or whatever it is at the restaurant, you know, to just let notice how the heart puts down any need for the moment to be different than it is. Because this is the moment you wanted. So instead of jumping into the activity, it's like we're curious about the heart that doesn't need things to be different than they are. Because we want to get to know that heart that's content, that's at peace, that's willing to be really close. Because then we can start taking that heart to other moments that maybe aren't perfect, like perfectly pleasant. Realize, well, maybe I can be undefended, intimate, open, kind in this moment too. Maybe it can be a whole way of relating to every moment, even the difficult moments. doesn't mean that we won't take care of ourselves or stand up for ourselves. It just means we're going to be intimate. We're going to be undefended. And that will actually support us responding in skillful ways. So I'll leave it here. We have about seven or ten minutes. It would be nice to hear a few comments from folks which you're learning in this regard in your practice, questions you might have. Point your, the mic like this so we can all hear you. It's always nice to hear people. Yeah, Dan, you want to start us off? All the way in the back here. Uh, thanks, Mark, for the great talk. Um, your talk reminds me of a short story I read several years ago about these two guys who were good with work, woodworking, and their dad died, and they set out, you know, you know while he's being prepared by the funeral place uh, to build his casket, and um, and it was it was really an interesting story because they they it, it was such a gateway into the acceptance of it. And they were remembering, and and they were very particular about certain aspects of the casket because they knew things like their dad. So, I, it just hearing you just reminds me of uh, those are the, one of those rare examples where people can take their skills or talents and and really live the moment to deal with something that's very difficult to deal with. Um, I have one quick question though. This component of biases, you know. Or experiencing bias, if I'm pretty convinced there's a big element of control in there. Uh, in fact, when I get thoughts, angry thoughts, there's a person I work with, I have a difficult time with them. And I'm almost to a point where it's just I get really annoyed dealing with them. Uh, I, 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 it's hard to separate, but I just sense this element of control. And... Um, you know, and it's probably my control wishing it was different than what it is. But if you could elaborate a little bit more about that point, yeah. if you agree with it, and then if, uh, you know, our meditation, if it helps sort of deconstruct it or... Yeah, that because that's the... I mean, just to keep it simple, that's the option we have in every moment to control the conditions that I'm experiencing in the moment so they're just the way I want them to be. So that's the path of hate and greed, greed and 
anger or aversion, liking and disliking, right? And that's endlessly stressful because we're constantly having to manage, or like you said, Dan, control things, control the conditions so that they're the way we like them to be. And this path is the happiness, the relief of not needing to be in control. We still have preferences with this view, but we're just interested in a more resonant kind of happiness, which is the happiness of doing what we can do, but the happiness of knowing that I can be at ease even when the conditions are the way I don't want them to be. That whether the conditions are nice or bad, I'm going to be at ease. I'm going to be intimate. I'm going to allow the moment to be the way it is. So even though I'm participating, I'm trying to set in motion things that I like, I'm trying to avoid things I don't like. More than that, though, I'm practicing being at ease with whatever ends up showing up. So this is a different, this is what we'd call the spiritual path, where the happiness we're seeking is the happiness of not needing the world to be different than what it is. And a worldly approach to happiness is seeking happiness by controlling the world so the world is the way we want it to be. And we do this with our partners, you do it with your kids, you know, wanting them to be the way you think they should be instead of letting them you know, be the way that they are. And it's heartbreaking when we catch ourselves. Yeah, thanks, Dan. Bring that up. Time for at least one more person. Sure. I'll hold the microphone like that. Okay, thanks. Hello, my name is Ricardo. I've been coming here for about three uh, weeks or so. And um, there is something I been a little apprehensive about sharing with anyone. I've just been thinking about it, but now I'm ready. And that is the following. So I've come to the realization that there have been times when I'm in the presence of like anger and aggressive behavior or provoking behavior. And then um, so I tried this experiment um, where I don't react I just think about it, I become aware of what's happening, and then I've been in the presence of some friends that have said, are you not going to say anything? Aren't you going to reply? (laughs) (laughs) And, And then I said to my friends, and I don't think they understood, but I said, well, have you ever heard of the power of not saying anything? (laughs) And uh, because I found that um, as I'm built as a human being, my defense mechanism uh, naturally comes up. But because of classes like this and experiences like this, I uh, realize that it's uh, best not to say anything sometimes because that's just going to feed that anger and that apathy and and all that. So um, that is something I have been thinking about and I wanted to share with everyone and that's all I have to say. Thank you. Mm. Thanks Ricardo. That's beautiful to hear. A nice way to end. Maybe we can pass the mic over to Tom. We'll just take a few seconds. Let go of the words. Appreciate being here together. And just a few seconds to tune into something beautiful whether that's in your heart or in the experience of the whole room together.
and we amplify the goodness in our lives with this simple wish whenever you connect with something good or beautiful, however simple it might be, the wish is something like, may this goodness continue and increase and never end. We're just feeling that expansive quality that is there when the heart is open. Thanks everyone for coming today. Really nice to be together. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.